0: All right, let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would give us more opportunities to minister to the followers in this community and to show the love that you have shown to us in Christ. Help us open doors for us and give us the faith to walk through them and to trust you to work and to heal. Father, we pray for the Conrad and Hawkins family as they continue to mourn the loss of Papa Hawk, for the Jones family as they continue to Mourn the loss of Don, for the mensels and wheelers as we continue to mourn the loss of uh, my Nana. Pray that you would be with us all as we go into the holiday season with our griefs and sadnesses. Pray that you would give us faith for that and that you'd help us to love one another. Thank you that you have uh, brought the Long family and the Abrams family through uh, scary sickness over the past couple of weeks. Pray that you would be with those of us who are sick right now and that you would heal them and that we would go into the holidays healthy. Thank you for all the children that you have growing in their mother's wombs. We pray that you would keep them safe and that you would bring them to term and that you would raise up for yourself a godly heritage in this church. Pray for the marriages and the strains that are put on them through the holidays, that you would help us to love one another and care for one another. Pray that you'd help us to love our kids and to not take out our frustrations or our sadnesses or our bitternesses on them. Pray for the teachers right now as they teach and care for and love our little ones, that you would bless them and that you would give them wisdom and grace and strength as they lead. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, today we come to the conclusion of our Advent series. We have studied three reasons God became man, and the big, of course, overarching reason is the fall of man right? Our first father, Adam, rejected God the Father. And the big lesson is that because of that, we now have Hallmark movies in Kentucky fans. I got booed last time. where are the boos. <laughs> someday, someday Indiana will be good enough at basketball again. I really believe that I won't be able to make those jokes. I, I, it would be from too much of a place of strength. I believe in that world. I'm hopeful. It fits with my eschatology. I'll let you figure out what that means. (laughs) No, Adam sinned, and we have had daddy issues ever since. The world has had daddy issues. Does our culture have daddy issues? It does. How do you know? Here's one way that you know. What is the least safe place to be a baby in America today? Where is that? In In their mother's womb in their mother's womb. It's the least safe place to be a baby. Do so we have daddy issues? Do we have mommy issues? we got problems. When mothers and fathers kill their children, when marriage is something that you can just walk away from, when abandonment and abuse are rampant, when most children born today will grow up in a home without a father, or without a mother, or without both, but the majority of kids grow up in a home without a father, you know we have problems. We live in a world of daddy issues, and we've talked about it all. We've talked about our own dads, we've talked about our grandfathers, we've talked about Christmas movies, and Hallmark movies, and YouTube daddies like David Goggins, the issues they bring to the table. And we've talked about death. Death entered the world through sin. Suffering entered the world through sin. Sin ruins everything. Sin ruins relationships, it destroys them, even the most foundational, fundamental relationships in existence marriage, mothers and fathers and their children, brothers and sisters. We've hung over this whole series the banner that is the last verse of the Old Testament, which is a promise. The final promise Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. God cares about turning the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, because God is our Father. And that's the first reason that we gave for why God became man, why Jesus came. He came to reveal the Father. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He was declared the son of God from heaven before he started his ministry. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Before Jesus came, the Bible didn't teach us much about the fatherhood of God. It didn't didn't teach us to call God father. Jesus comes and in his first public sermon that we have a record of, he calls God father how many times? 16. And throughout the four gospels, He refers to God as Father at least, do you remember? 150 times, at least 150 times, from nothing to a lot. And Jesus didn't just come to teach us about God the Father, right? To tell us about him and to tell us to call him Father. He showed us the Father and how he lived and how he loved us and how he cared for us and how he healed us, how he got down on his knees, how he healed the blind and the lame, how He cast out demons, how He cared for us, how He stooped down to us and taught us. All of it was Jesus showing us the love of the Father. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. While we were still His enemies, He showed us the love of the Father by going all the way to the cross so that we could be reconciled to the Father. That was our second reason, to reveal the Father and to reconcile us to the Father. Jesus bore the punishment of our sins on himself. He traded his righteousness for our sin, his reward for our punishment, so that we could be reconciled to God, so that we could be forgiven of our sins, so that we could be redeemed from slavery to sin and Satan in the world and adopted into the household of God. Ephesians 1 puts it this way. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So now, if you belong to Jesus, it doesn't matter who you are or where you came from. It doesn't matter what your dad was like. It doesn't matter if he was present or absent, abusive or not. Sure, it still matters. But you have a Father in heaven who is perfect. And that's good news to everyone, no matter how bad it's been. You have a Father who will never leave you, who will never abuse you, who will never abandon you, who will be with you to the very end. And he has changed you, he has changed your identity, he has adopted you into his family, the church where you are loved. Reconciled to him. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so now you can say, if you have been adopted into God's family, that your father literally hung the moon, that your dad put the stars in the sky. That your Father's love reaches higher than the heavens. That your Father's faithfulness stretches to the sky. That your Father's righteousness is like the mighty mountains. He is big, He is strong, He is powerful, and He loves you with an unbreakable, everlasting love. Because your life has been paid for by the blood of His only begotten Son. You are precious to Him. He didn't have to do it, but He did. And that means that your father's anger against your enemies burns hotter than the sun. This is your father's world. Everything in it belongs to him. He has handed it over to Jesus. Jesus is our king, and there is nothing that can separate you from the love of your father in heaven. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never abandon you. He will never abuse you. He will never let anything come between you and him. There is no power of hell. There is no scheme of man that will separate you from the love of God in Christ. Nothing in creation can stand between you and your Father. Romans 8 puts it this way If God is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? He's given you everything, it's yours. So when you turn on the news or when you open social media, you see the world raging against you, remember, they're raging against your dad, against your father, and they can't do anything to him. They can't touch him. He who sits in the heavens laughs. When you were his enemy, he sent his only begotten son down from heaven to be born in a barn to walk this earth and to live as you live, to love you, to heal you, to teach you, to call you to repent of your sins and to suffer and die in your place so that you can be forgiven, so that you can be reconciled to him, so that you can be adopted into his family, so that you can know the love and acceptance of a father who will never leave you. So that just as Jesus at the start of his ministry heard from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, that same love and that same pleasure of God the Father is yours. He is well-pleased with you in Jesus. So you don't have to work for his approval or the approval of any man. You have no one to please and no one to fear but him. So you work, not, from, not for his approval, but from it. So that you can get up tomorrow and face a world that belongs to your Father in heaven. So you can get up tomorrow and love your wife and lay down your life for her as Jesus laid down his life for you so that you can get up tomorrow and submit to and honor your husband, not because he's perfect, not because he won't fail you, not because he won't hurt you, but because your father sees and knows and cares for you and will protect you. So you can go out and take dominion of this world in the name of your father and in the name of his son, who is your big brother and your king. So you can go to work and work is unto the Lord. So you can love your kids as your Father loves you, so you can forgive one another as your Father forgives you, so you can show compassion to the poor and the needy, the lowly, the widow and the orphan, as your Father has had compassion on you. So you can love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you as the Father loved you while you were still His enemy, as Jesus prayed for you on the cross while you were persecuting Him so that you children can honor your parents as Jesus honored his father in everything that he did, so that you can be free from your anger and your lust and your ingratitude, because you don't have to live that way anymore. You have a father who loves you and takes up your cause and who's given you all good things. And that work, the work of doing that is what comes next, because Jesus didn't just come to reveal the father or reconcile us to the father, but to restore us, To heal us. Not just to have a happy relationship with Him that doesn't do anything but make us kind of happy inside, but a relationship with Him that transforms us, that heals us, that makes us like Him so that we work out of that identity as sons and daughters of God and our lives are healed and transformed because we belong to our Father in heaven. And we begin, like Jesus, who lived his whole life doing the works that he saw his father do, we now have a father and we imitate him. And we do the works of our father in heaven. And we show that to the world and we love others as we have been loved. Because he heals us. He heals our hearts. He heals our homes. He heals our families. He restores us. So two things I want to talk about and really one today. Because I want to talk about the sticking points. And we've talked a lot about forgiveness. And what I want, to, I want to talk, everything is love, right? What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, right? So love as you have been loved, starting by forgiving as you have been forgiven. Okay, last week I said a lot of us feel real tension around the holidays because we have all these family relationships we have to navigate. And some of them, there's no real forgiveness, and it's hard. Real reconciliation comes through forgiveness, through the ability to sincerely say, I've hurt you, and I'm sorry, I was wrong, I love you. And the ability to sincerely say, I forgive you, and I'm sorry too. But instead we we feel pressure to just act like everything's okay. Some things aren't okay, some things aren't fine. And where there needs to be real reconciliation, there needs to first be a real acknowledgement that everything's not okay and everything's not fine. And I know that as we've worked through some of these things and talked about some of these things, some of you have just like hit a brick wall called forgiveness and said, man, I don't know what to do. Do I need to sit down and have a conversation with my fill in the blank? I feel like maybe I should. Why have you hit up against a brick wall? What's the name of the brick wall? Put a name to it. I'll tell you. It's bitterness. That's what it is. It's bitterness. Some of us here today live in bitterness. Somebody hurts you. Maybe many people hurt you. Maybe it was somebody close to you. Maybe it wasn't, but maybe it was. Maybe it was somebody close to you. It could be your dad, it could be your mom, it could be your kids, it could be your extended family, your friends, your boss, your coworkers, pastors, elders. It could be me. One way or another, you've been hurt. You felt pain, that's natural. Somebody hurts you, you feel pain. Maybe it was deep, maybe it was traumatic. Maybe it was something that in and of itself wasn't a big deal, but it became a big deal. Either way, you haven't been able to let go of it. Maybe you haven't even wanted to. You'd rather be bitter about it. Bitterness is living in a prison while having the key in your pocket and choosing to live in the prison. It's not just being hurt once in your past, it's reliving the hurt, rehearsing the hurt. Nurturing it, nourishing it, in allowing that person to continue to hurt you by fixating and hurting yourself. Why would, you, why would somebody do something like that? Why would you do that? Well, on some level, it feels good or comfortable. We like to pity ourselves. We like to resent other people. It gives us a feeling of power, of control over a situation where we felt powerless or out of control, even if it's all in our heads, and a lot of people use bitterness to deal with their own guilt, too, their own sin. We all know deep down that we're sinners. If we don't have the faith to give our sin to Jesus, we have to deal with it somehow. One way to do that is simply to find somebody to blame, to be the victim, to make, it some, to make somebody else the villain in our story, to make it their fault for the problems that I'm dealing with now to make it their fault that my life is what it is today. If we can't make ourselves morally superior, what we can do is at least make everyone else around us our moral inferior, the ones that are truly to blame. In that sense, bitterness just feeds pride. It's the flip side of self-righteousness. It keeps us from having to deal with our own sin. And it feels nice in its own way. Uh, I was reading a book called Anna Karenina the other day. Anybody know that book? Some of y'all do. Fantastic book. Here's the story of Anna or Anna Karenina. Anna is a high society lady. She's beautiful. She's vibrant. And she's married to an honorable, respectable man. But that man is emotionally distant, a little cold, more like an engineer than like a lover. And she ends up being seduced by a younger man. And the book follows two parallel love stories. And the one story is the story of Levin and his romance with Kitty as they step away from these romantic ideals into the romance of real life, the romance of marriage. And Anna, as she steps away from marriage into some false idea of romance and into adultery, and it follows everything in her descent that goes on in her heart as she betrays her husband, as she betrays her son, as she goes from being a respected darling of Russian society to, uh, by a word, and tanks her life and turns it all to dust. So I was reading this on Friday night. Y'all were at ladies' night. And uh, there's this passage where uh, Anna's lover shows up at her house and uh, Anna reveals to him that she's pregnant, and he's like, all right, I guess it's time to make a decision. Are we going to just go public? Are you going to ask your husband for a divorce or what? And this is what Anna says, Anna's talking about her husband, okay? And I'm going to start with that, and I'm just going to keep reading what Tolstoy says. He's not a man, he's a machine, and a wicked machine when he gets angry, she added recalling her husband in all the details of his figure, manner of speaking, and character, holding him guilty for everything bad she could find in him and forgiving him nothing on account of the terrible fault for which she stood guilty before him. You hear that? In other words, Anna was guilty before her husband, so what did she have to do? She had to rehearse and recall everything everything about him she possibly could in detail so that she could despise it. Even his figure and his manner of speaking. She had to elevate and escalate his sins and his failures and flaws so that everything was evil and horrible. Stupid. Because she couldn't cope with the guilt she felt in her own heart. She had to justify herself by making him a bigger monster than she deep down knew herself to be. She had to justify herself by making him a bigger monster than she had the courage to face in her own heart. Easier to face the monster I imagine you to be than the monster in the mirror. Easier to face the monster I imagine my husband, my wife, my father, my mother, my grandfather, my uncle, my pastor, my boss, to be than the monster in the mirror. That is bitterness. and Isn't that what we do? Isn't it true that we cultivate bitterness for sins that have been committed against us? And some of those sins are real and some of them are imagined, And the imagined ones are products not so much of the other person's sin, but of our own guilt. If we refuse to deal with our own sin and guilt, we will be incapable of being honest about other people. We'll always find fault. We'll always cultivate bitterness. And we will hold their every flaw against them and forgive them nothing. Not even the sins we imagine because of the guilt that we bear that we can't deal with. We need a scapegoat, which is not to say that there are not real monsters out there, okay? It's not to say that whoever hurt you wasn't, in fact, a real monster. I am simply saying that you cannot and will not judge rightly until you've dealt with your own heart, until you've dealt with your own guilt before God. And many people don't because they don't want to do it. They want to find somebody to blame. Bitterness is fuel that we feed off of. It's fuel that you can take and use to turn you into a superhero. People have done extraordinary things on the fuel of bitterness. That is what David Goggins is, that is what Michael Jordan is. There's a world of people that have taken and learned how to harness their bitterness and anger and use it as fuel. It's powerful, it is potent, it is a drug. It's addictive. Whole careers have been built on it. Whole marriages, whole families. And sometimes they have been phenomenally successful, but it will make you sick from the inside out. And it will leave you in the end alone and isolated. It's self-destructive, just like any other addiction. At first, it can give you comfort, it can even empower you, it can even make you strong. The more you use it, the more it eats you up within. And not just you, which is the lie that we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves it's just me that's affected, but that is not the truth. Hebrews 12 says this, See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Bitterness doesn't just defile you, it defiles everyone around you. Someone once said that bitterness is like a cup that you carry around full to the brim, and every time you're jostled, you just spill it on everybody else around you. And it's a good analogy. We know people who are like that who are bitter. They think they're just making a conversation, but really they're complaining about the person who did them wrong. Really they're spewing poisons to anybody who will listen. spreading lies, don't even know that they're doing it. They're just so acclimated to spewing their bitterness. Whole churches have been destroyed by this sort of thing. Families are destroyed by this sort of thing. Work environments are turned toxic by this sort of thing. And you don't just spread it to our fellow adults, right? We teach it to our kids, we model it, our kids repeat it. If as a parent, you hope someday for your kids to forgive you your sins, which are real (laughs) against them. You cannot cultivate bitterness against your own parents. You have to learn to forgive them. Yeah, well, Jake, I'm a thousand times better than my parents. There'll be less, there'll be a lot less to forgive. It'll be a lot easier for them. They can be better than me, you know. I can be bitter with my mom. I can be bitter with my dad. They'll be better than me. They'll forgive me. No, they won't. No, they won't. Not apart from a miracle. They'll do what you taught them. They'll be what you showed them. If bitterness is your food, your kids will forage for things to be bitter about. You'll look at them and you'll think, man, what do you have to be bitter about? You have it so easy compared to what I had. But you're bitter. And you've taught them that bitterness is their food. So they're just looking to do What you've taught them—they're looking to feed off of what you've taught them. They're just doing what you've been, what they've been taught, what you've shown them. You have to decide. I will not be consumed by bitterness. My family will not be consumed by bitterness. We will not be a family consumed by anger and bitterness. We will not be a family consumed by unforgiveness. I will forgive. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Is how that verse begins. Don't miss the grace of God. Decide that you and your family will not be ruled by bitterness. Show them that we don't have to be perfect, they don't have to be perfect, but we can live at peace with God and with others through forgiveness. We don't have to be ruled by bitterness. So let's talk about forgiveness because we've all been sinned against, some of us in horrible ways, some of us by the people God has made to protect us most. Abandoned, hurt, abused, abused physically, sexually, emotionally, spiritually, manipulated, lied to. There are real sins that have been committed against you. And there are real temptations with, with those sins to become bitter. And that means we have to learn to forgive. All of us do. All of us do. So, how do we do it? It should be easy. It should. We were God's enemies. God loves us. God forgives us all our sins, reconciles us to himself, forgives us the infinite debt of our own sins. It should be easy to just turn and like, whew, why is it so hard? We're adopted children of God. That's freeing and liberating. Sometimes like adopted children who know they're adopted, who come from abusive situations, we know it and we act like or think we're second-class citizens. It can be hard to receive and embrace God's love. Find it hard to believe that God can actually love us. And when we're that way with God, we can be stingy with our love to everyone else around us. We will be, we will nurse bitterness, we will nurse grudges. And what we need to do is just repent of our bitterness and of making God as small as we are. Okay, so what is forgiveness? Let's talk about what it's not. First, forgiveness is not denying what has happened. It's not denying what's happened. I need you to forget, it's fine, no, it's no big deal. It's okay. Love does cover a multitude of sins, and there are some things that are light and easy, and we just look over things, okay? There are some things where we say, it's fine, it's no big deal, and what we're doing is we're putting up a wall and we're denying that something bad has happened. The opposite of being angry, though, is not pretending that there's nothing to be angry about. The way we deal with our desire for justice and vengeance is not to pretend like there is nothing to avenge. The way we deal with those things is we have to put them in God's hands. Who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You have to acknowledge the debt, it's real. And you have to give it to God. You have to decide that you're not going to be the one who makes them pay. Not even in your heart. Because if we're still tallying up debts, what about yours? You can't deal with your debt before God. Set them aside. Remember the mercy of God. Acknowledge wrongs and leave them in God's hands. He says he'll repay. You have to trust. If you trust God to take care of you and you trust God to take care of your family, you have to trust God to take care of those who have wronged you. So forgiveness is not just denying what happened. Second, forgiveness is not merely acknowledging that something has happened. Sometimes when we say we've forgiven somebody, what we actually mean is that we have acknowledged that something bad has happened, and now we just want to forget about it and sweep it under the rug. It's just like half a step forward without anything happening in our hearts. We've just moved it from denial to acknowledgement. But we, don't want it to, we don't want it to get inside here. We don't want to have to deal with what's in here. That's not forgiveness either. Forgiveness leads to peace and love and freedom. Those are products of God's work in our heart. Those are products of God's work in our lives. We have to move beyond denial. It's like the stages of grief, right? Beyond denial, beyond mere acceptance. Third, forgiveness is not a one-time act. I said, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's, you know, oh, you know, I bumped into you. Oh, you know, made you spill your coffee. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, it's okay. It's done. We forgot it ever happened, right? Except Leo's done it to me like six times and I've kept a careful record of wrongs. And so (laughs) I'm very bitter about that because I love my coffee. Just joking. Um, Forgiveness is not a one-time act because there are real wounds and real scar tissue. Sometimes old wounds are reopened and old hurts reoccur. People are still jerks. Some people grow, some people don't. Forgiveness has to be ongoing. You have to keep forgiving. You have to keep reminding yourself of how God forgave you, of his love and adoption, of his grace and of his kindness. And you have to keep drawing on that to fuel your forgiveness. You have to keep turning to the well of God's mercy to you. Forgiveness is something you have to walk in, just like faith is something that you have to walk in. And we have to be reminded of that because we would all love to resolve the tension and have forgiveness be something that we have done one time and dealt with and over and done. We just resolve the tension, act like we've done the work once and for all with the people that have hurt us most deeply and problem solved. Don't have to think about it, don't have to deal with it. But no, no. Oh, forgiveness is something that you have to keep renewing. You don't pick at it like you, you know, rehearse it like you do bitterness, but you just have to acknowledge that, man, some wounds take a long time to heal, and that means I have to keep doing the work. I can't stop and act like I can put this in a box in a corner. Fourth, forgiveness doesn't enable what happened to continue, okay? So it doesn't deny it, doesn't merely acknowledge it. It's not just a one-time thing, and it does not enable the wrongs to continue. Just because you've forgiven somebody does not mean you suddenly turn stupid, okay? It doesn't mean you suddenly accept and trust somebody as if nothing ever happened. In some cases, it may not even mean that you reconcile with them. Sometimes forgiveness should not lead to reconciliation as we think of it. There was a family in our church up in Bloomington. The grandfather would come visit over the holidays and take the grandchildren to the hotel so that they could swim in the hotel pool where he would sexually assault them. And then when it was uncovered, he demanded that he be forgiven and that those and reconciled and still get to spend time with his grandkids. Like, no, buddy, forgiveness, sure, but you need to go to jail and there will be no ongoing relationship with these grandkids. Not like that. A little girl is abused by a relative. She grows up and by God's grace forgives her abuser. He doesn't go to prison for whatever reason because people are stupid and this is the way it works a lot of the time. She gets married, she has kids. Should she, because she has forgiven him by God's grace, let him spend time with her kids? No, no, why? Because he's not safe. He's not trustworthy. That's why. Forgiveness doesn't pretend like somebody is suddenly trustworthy. Not everyone you've forgiven is trustworthy. Trust needs to be earned. And where it's been broken, it needs to be rebuilt. And sometimes you love somebody. There's some things you don't come back from. It's too much at stake. Especially when it comes to the people God's given you to protect. So I'll go so far as to say that sometimes forgiveness needs to happen without the other person even knowing it, without there needing to be a conversation. Sometimes we have to work things out in our own hearts before God, because sometimes our desire to work things out with the person we're bitter with is really just a desire to punish them, to dredge up old wounds. I forgive you is a very powerful weapon in the hands of a bitter person. We have to be careful. If we're gonna initiate conversations with people, it takes a lot of wisdom. Sometimes the desire to go and have those conversations comes out of a desire to rekindle a relationship that's not possible or not wise. These are deep matters. They are matters of wisdom. The things that you need to be talking to people about before you go do something that you may regret. And I'm saying this because I know that some of you have been talking and thinking about, man, do I need to have a conversation? Okay? Be careful and be wise. Talk to us. We'll help as best we can. There are wise and foolish ways to have hard conversations. Sometimes what you really need to do is not say, I forgive you, but I'm sorry. Okay, what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is deciding to pay somebody else's debt to accept it. You are owed better treatment. Your dad should not have left. He left. Okay, he did. Your uncle shouldn't have done what he did. Okay, your mom, whatever, your coworker. your boss, your pastor, your sister. It's choosing to accept that, to pay that debt. It's got to be paid for, I'm not going to require it of your hand. I accept being wronged. I put justice in God's hands. I forgo my right to hold on to anger and hate. I will love. Okay, but Jake, it's so hard to let go of these things. It's hard. I've been hurt. I've been wounded. It's reflexive. I've developed 30 years, 40 years, 50 years of coping. Bitterness is my old friend. The walls I've thrown up in my heart feel safe. Yeah, I live in prison long enough and you won't know how to be free. Live in prison long enough, and there's comfort behind the bars of the jail. Food may be bad, but it's hot. Served three times a day. God calls you to more. He wants more for you. He wants you to be free. So do I. I want you to be free. It is for freedom that Christ set you free, so be free. Be reconciled to God. Be restored to life, a new life with a Father who loves you, who cares for you, who counts up every sin against you and place all of your own sins on the cross of Jesus, including your bitterness, including your pain. The baby that was born in Bethlehem is big enough to bear the pain of the whole world. He holds the stars in the palm of his hands. He can hold and your pain, and he can deal with it. What more can he say? What more can he do? How much more love does he need to show you? How much more love before you stop acting like an abused child and just accept that you have a father who loves you with a perfect love, who accepts you, embraces you, and forgives you with a perfect forgiveness. You don't have to carry around your debts anymore, and that means you don't have to be bothered by anybody else's debts against you you can be free. You can be free to be kind and tenderhearted, to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. You can be free to love one another as God has loved you. So as you go throughout this week, as you get together with family and friends to celebrate Jesus, celebrate him by giving him the gift, which is how he will receive it, of laying all your sins and bitternesses on his shoulders. It's what he came to bear. It's why he came. It's what he wants from you. He himself has said it's more blessed to give than receive. And he wants to give you his life. And he wants you to give him your death. He wants to give you his joy. He wants to take. He wants you to give him your pain. He wants to give you his holiness. He wants you to give him your sin. He wants to give you freedom and love and peace. He wants you to give him your bitterness. Let it go. Give it up. Be done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have loved us and that you have sent your son into this world to bear our pain and to bear our sin, our sorrows, our griefs, not just to show us your love, but to love us, to reconcile us to yourself, and to heal us. I pray that this morning there would be real healing in this room. I pray that this morning that you would free us from bitterness and anger so that we can love as you have loved us and forgive as you have forgiven us in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.